I'm Peter Medic, and you're listening to Episode 8 of Return of the Birds. If this is the first time you've dropped into the story, you might want to listen to the previous episodes, but you're welcome to stick around. Please visit returntothebirds.com to find show notes for each episode. The show notes include links back to the Macaulay Library bird vocalizations we used in this episode, images of the birds mentioned in the episode, and more. I want to give a special thank you to the thousands of women and men in the field who recorded and cataloged the bird calls and songs I used over the course of this audiobook. You're doing selfless and important work. And I have a favor to ask. If you know someone or meet someone who likes being outdoors, being outside, being in nature, please tell them about Return of the Birds. It would really help our show take flight. Thank you. Turning to the left from the old road, I wander over soft logs and gray yielding debris, across a little trout brook, until I emerge in the overgrown bark peeling. Pausing now and then on the way to admire a small, solitary white flower which rises above the moss, with radical, heart-shaped leaves and blossom precisely like the liverwort, except in color, but which is not put down in my botany, or to observe the ferns, of which I count six varieties, some gigantic ones, nearly shoulder-high. At the foot of a rough, scraggy yellow birch, on the bank of club moss, so richly inlaid with partridge berry and curious shining leaves, with here and there in the bordering a spire of false wintergreen strung with faint pink flowers and exhaling the breath of a May orchard, that it looks too costly a couch for such an idler, I recline to note what transpires. The sun is just past the meridian, and the afternoon chorus is not yet in full tune. Most birds sing with the greatest spirit and vivacity in the forenoon, though there are occasional bursts later in the day in which nearly all voices join. While it is not till the twilight that the full power and solemnity of the thrush's hymn is felt, my attention is soon arrested by a pair of hummingbirds, the ruby-throated disporting themselves in a low bush a few yards from me. The female takes shelter amid the branches, and squeaks exultingly as the male, circling above, dives down as if to dislodge her. Seeing me, he drops like a feather on a slender twig, and in a moment both are gone. Then, as if by a preconcerted signal, the throats are all attuned. I lie on my back with eyes half-closed, and analyze the chorus of warblers, thrushes, finches, and flycatchers, while, soaring above all, a little withdrawn and alone rises the divine contralto of the hermit. That richly modulated warble proceeding from the top of yonder birch and which unpractised ears would mistake for the voice of the scarlet tanager, comes that rare visitant, the rose-breasted grosbeak. It is a strong, vivacious strain, 
a bright noonday song, full of health and assurance, indicating fine talents in the performer, but not genius. As I come up under the tree, he casts his eye down at me, but continues his song. This bird is said to be quite common in the Northwest, but he is rare in the Eastern districts. His beak is disproportionately large and heavy, like a huge nose, which slightly mars his good looks. But nature has made it up to him in a blush rose upon his breast and the most delicate of pink linings to the underside of his wings. His back is variegated black and white, and when flying low, the white shows conspicuously. If he passed over your head, you would note the delicate flush under his wings. That bit of bright scarlet on yonder dead hemlock, glowing like a live coal against the dark background, seeming almost too brilliant for the severe northern climate, is his relative, the scarlet tanager. I occasionally meet him in the deep hemlocks, and know no stronger contrast in nature. I almost fear he will kindle the dry limb on which he alights. He is quite a solitary bird and in this section seems to prefer the high, remote woods, even going quite to the mountain's top. Indeed, the event of my last visit to the mountain was meeting one of these brilliant creatures near the summit in full song. The breeze carried the notes far and wide. He seemed to enjoy the elevation, and I imagined his song had more scope and freedom than usual. When he had flown far down the mountainside, the breeze still brought me his finest notes. In plumage, he is the most brilliant bird we have. The bluebird is not entirely blue nor will the indigo bird bear close inspection, nor the goldfinch, nor the summer redbird. But the tanager loses nothing by near view. The deep scarlet of his body and the black of his wings and tail are quite perfect. This is his holiday suit. In the fall, he becomes a dull yellowish green, the color of the female the whole season. One of the leading songsters in this choir of the old bark peeling is the purple finch, or linnet. He sits somewhat apart, usually on a dead hemlock, and warbles most exquisitely. He's one of our finest songsters, and stands at the head of the finches, as the hermit at the head of the thrushes. His song approaches an ecstasy, and with the exception of the winter wrens, is the most rapid and copious strain to be heard in these woods. It is quite destitute of the trills and the liquid, silvery, bubbling notes that characterize the wrens, but there runs through it a round, richly modulated whistle, very sweet and very pleasing.
The call of the robin is brought in at a certain point with marked effect, and, throughout, the variety is so great and the strain so rapid that the impression is as of two or three birds singing at the same time. He's not common here, and I only find him in these or similar woods. His color is peculiar, and looks as if it might have been imparted by dipping a brown bird in diluted pokeberry juice. Two or three more dippings would have made the purple complete. The female is the color of the song sparrow, a little larger, with a heavier beak, and tail much more forked. In a little opening quite free from brush and trees, I step down to bathe my hands in the brook, when a small, light slate-colored bird flutters out of the bank, not three feet from my head, as I stoop down and, as if severely lamed or injured, flutters through the grass and into the nearest bush. As I do not follow, but remain near the nest, she chips sharply, which brings the male, and I see it is the speckled Canada warbler. I find no authority in the books for this bird to build upon the ground, yet here is the nest, made chiefly of dry grass, set in a slight excavation in the bank not two feet from the water, and looking a little perilous to anything but ducklings or sandpipers. There are two young birds and one little speckled egg just pipped. But how is this? What mystery is here? One nestling is so much larger than the other, monopolizes most of the nest, and lifts its open mouth far above that of its companion, though obviously both are of the same age, not more than a day old. I see the old trick of the cow bunting, with a stinging human significance. Taking the interloper by the nape of the neck, I deliberately drop it into the water, but not without a pang, as I see its naked form convulsing with chills float downstream. Cruel? So is nature cruel. I take one life to save two. In less than two days, this pot-bellied intruder would have caused the death of two of the rightful occupants of the nest. So I step in and turn things to their proper channel again. It is a singular freak of nature, this instinct which prompts one bird to lay its eggs in the nests of others and thus shirk the responsibility of rearing its own young. The cowbuntings always resort to this cunning trick, and when one reflects upon their numbers, it is evident that these little tragedies are quite frequent. In Europe, the parallel case is that of the cuckoo, and occasionally our own cuckoo imposes upon a robin or a thrush in the same manner. The cowbunting seems to have no conscience about the matter, and, so far as I have observed, invariably selects the nest of a bird smaller than itself. Its egg is usually the first to hatch. Its young overreaches all the rest when the food is brought. It grows with great rapidity, spreads and fills the nest, and the starved and crowded occupants soon perish. When the parent bird removes their dead bodies, giving its whole energy and care to the foster child, the warblers and smaller flycatchers are generally the sufferers though I sometimes see the slate-colored snowbird unconsciously duped in like manner. And the other day, in a tall tree in the woods, I discovered the black-throated green-backed warbler devoting itself to this dusky, overgrown foundling. An old farmer, to whom I pointed out the fact, was much surprised that such things should happen in his woods without his knowledge. These birds may be seen prowling through all parts of the woods at this season, watching for an opportunity to steal their egg into some nest. 
One day, while sitting on a log, I saw one moving by short flights through the trees and gradually nearing the ground. Its movements were hurried and stealthy. About fifty yards from me, it disappeared behind some low brush and had evidently alighted upon the ground. After waiting a few moments, I cautiously walked in the direction. When about halfway, I accidentally made a slight noise when a bird flew up and, seeing me, hurried off out of the woods. Arrived at the place, I found a simple nest of dry grass and leaves partially concealed under a prostrate branch. I took it to be the nest of a sparrow. There were three eggs in the nest, and one lying about a foot below it, as if it had been rolled out, as, of course, it had. It suggested the thought that perhaps, when the cowbird finds the full complement of eggs in a nest, it throws out one and deposits its own instead. I revisited the nest a few days afterwards and found an egg again cast out, but none had been put in its place. The nest had been abandoned by its owner, and the eggs were stale. In all cases where I have found this egg, I have observed both male and female of the cowbird lingering near, the former uttering his peculiar liquid glassy note from the tops of the trees. In July, the young, which have been reared in the same neighborhood and which are now of a dull fawn color, begin to collect in small flocks, which grow to be quite large in autumn. Let me step ever so carefully from my hiding place, and all sounds instantly cease, and I search in vain for either parent or young. The partridge is one of our most native and characteristic birds. The woods seem good to be in where I find him. He gives a habitable air to the forest, and one feels as if the rightful occupant is really at home. The woods where I do not find him seem to want something, as if suffering from some neglect of nature. And then he has such a splendid success, so hardy and vigorous. I think he enjoys the cold and the snow. His wings seem to rustle with more fervency in midwinter. If the snow falls very fast, and promises a heavy storm, he will complacently sit down and allow himself to be snowed under. Approaching him at such times, he suddenly bursts out of the snow at your feet, scattering the flakes in all directions, and goes humming away through the woods like a bombshell, a picture of spirit and success. His drum is one of the most welcome and beautiful sounds of spring. Scarcely have all the trees expanded their buds when, in the still April mornings, or towards nightfall, you hear the hum of his devoted wings. He selects not, as you would predict, a dry and resinous log, but a decayed and crumbling one, seeming to give the preference to the old oak logs that are partly blended with the soil. If a log to his taste cannot be found, he sets up his altar on a rock, which becomes resonant beneath his fervent blows. Who has seen the partridge drum? It is the next thing to catching a weasel asleep, though by much caution and tact it may be done. He does not hug the log, but stands very erect, expands his ruff, 
gives two introductory blows, pauses a half second, and then resumes, striking faster and faster till the sound becomes a continuous unbroken whirr, the whole lasting less than half a minute. The tips of his wings barely brush the log, so that the sound is produced rather by the force of the blows upon the air and upon his own body, as in flying. One log will be used for many years, though not by the same drummer. It seems to be a sort of temple and held in great respect. The bird always approaches on foot and leaves it in the same quiet manner, unless rudely disturbed. He is very cunning, though his wit is not profound. It is difficult to approach him by stealth. You will try many times before succeeding, but seem to pass by him in a great hurry, making all the noise possible, and with plumage furled he stands as immovable as a knot, allowing you a good view and a good shot if you are a sportsman. Passing along one of the old bark peelers' roads, which wander aimlessly about, I am attracted by a singularly brilliant and emphatic warble, proceeding from the low bushes and quickly suggesting the voice of the Maryland yellowthroat. Presently, the singer hops up on a dry twig and gives me a good view. Lead-colored head and neck becoming nearly black on the breast, clear olive-green back, and yellow belly. From his habit of keeping near the ground, even hopping upon it occasionally, I know him to be a ground warbler. From his dark breast, the ornithologist has added the expletive morning, hence the morning ground warbler. Of this bird, both Wilson and Audubon confess their comparative ignorance, neither having seen its nest or become acquainted with its haunts and general habits. Its song is quite striking and novel, though its voice at once suggests the class of warblers to which it belongs. It is very shy and wary, flying but a few feet at a time and studiously concealing itself from your view. I discover but one pair here. The female has food in her beak, but carefully avoids betraying the locality of her nest. The ground warblers all have one notable feature, very beautiful legs. As white and delicate as if they'd always worn silk stockings and satin slippers. High tree warblers have dark brown or black legs and more brilliant plumage, but less musical ability. The chestnut sighted belongs to the latter class. He is quite common in these woods, as in all the woods about. He's one of the rarest and handsomest of the warblers. His white breast and throat, chestnut sides, and yellow crown show conspicuously. Last year I found the nest of one in an uplying beech wood in a low brush near the roadside, where cows passed and browsed daily. Things went on smoothly till the cow bunting stole her egg into it, when other mishaps followed and the nest was soon empty. A characteristic attitude of the male during this season is a slight drooping of the wings and tail a little elevated, which gives him a very smart, bantam-like appearance. His song is fine and hurried, 
and not much of itself, but has its place in the general chorus. A far sweeter strain, falling on the ear with true sylvan cadence, is that of the black-throated green-backed warbler, whom I meet at various points. He has no superiors among the true Sylvia. His song is very plain and simple, but remarkably pure and tender, and might be indicated by straight lines thus. The first two marks representing two sweet silvery notes in the same pitch of the voice, and quite unaccented. The latter marks, the concluding notes, wherein the tone and inflection are changed. The throat and the breast of the male are a rich black like velvet, his face yellow, and his back a yellowish green. Beyond the bark peeling, where the woods are mingled, hemlock, beech, and birch, the languid midsummer note of the black-throated blueback falls on my ear. In the upward slide, and with a peculiar zing of summer insects, but not destitute of a certain plaintive cadence, it is one of the most languid, unhurried sounds in all the woods. I feel like reclining upon the dry leaves at once. Audubon says he has never heard this love song, but this is all the love song he has. And he is evidently a very plain hero with his little mistress. He assumes few attitudes and is not a bold and striking gymnast like many of his kindred. He has a preference for dense woods of beech and maple, moves slowly amid the lowered branches and smaller growths. keeping from eight to ten feet from the ground, and repeating now and then his listless, indolent strain. His back and crown are dark blue, his throat and breast black, his belly pure white, and he has a white spot on each wing. Here and there I meet the black and white creeping warbler, whose fine strain reminds me of hair wire. It is unquestionably the finest bird song to be heard. Few insect strains will compare with it in this respect, while it has none of the harsh brassy character of the latter, being very delicate and tender. That sharp, uninterrupted, but still continued warble, which, before one has learned to discriminate closely, he is apt to confound with the red-eyed vireos, is that of the solitary warbling vireo, a bird slightly larger, much rarer, and with a louder, less cheerful and happy strain. I see him hopping along lengthwise of the limbs, and note the orange tinge of his breast and sides, and the white circle around his eye. But the declining sun and the deepening shadows admonish me that this ramble must be brought to a close, even though only the leading characters in this chorus of forty songsters have been described, and only a small portion of the venerable old woods explored. 
in a secluded swampy corner of the old bark peeling, where I find the great purple orchid in bloom. And where the foot of man or beast seems never to have trod, I linger long, contemplating the wonderful display of lichen and mosses that overrun both the smaller and larger growths. Every brush and branch and sprig is dressed up with the most rich and fantastic of liveries, and, crowning all, the long-bearded moss festoons the branches or sways gracefully from the limbs. Every twig looks a century old, though green leaves tip the end of it. A young yellow birch has a venerable patriarchal look and seems ill at ease under such premature honors. A decayed hemlock is draped as if by hands for some solemn festival. Mounting toward the upland again, I pause reverently as the hush and stillness of twilight come upon the woods. It is the sweetest, ripest hour of the day, and as the hermit's evening hymn goes up from the deep solitude below me, I experience that serene exaltation of sentiment, of which music, literature, and religion are but faint types and symbols. 1865 You listen to Return of the Birds, a serialized audiobook podcast of Wake Robin, written by John Burroughs and read by Peter Medic, with bird vocalizations courtesy of the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Recording, editing, mastering, and post-production by 44 from 26 in Bellingham, Washington. Recorded at One Fine Studio in Bellingham, Washington. This has been a presentation of 44 from 26, a family-owned and operated media experiment. For more updates, check out 44from26.com. Wake Robin is available for digital download in e-reader format at archive.org. This is 44 from 26. Thank you for listening to this episode of Return of the Birds. Any flubs, goofs, and mispronunciations or errors are mine. If you hear one or two and want to tell me about them, stop by 44from26.com forward slash contact and click the button to leave a voicemail or send an email. Till next time, chirp away. <laughs>